Hello, Daily Level readers and listeners, and welcome to the special edition of The Howl. I'm Daily Level Managing Editor Gino Gutierrez, and this week I sit down with Walter Gerstel, Emeritus Professor of Civil Engineering and a Professional Engineer, Steffi Weisberg, Retired Outreach and Education Manager at the School of Engineering, Caroline Scruggs, Associate Professor of Natural Resources and Environmental Planning, and also Associate Dean of Research in the School of Architecture, Ravi Jain, Professor in the Electrical and Computer Engineering, Physics and Astronomy, and Nanoscience and Microsystems Department, also a member of the Center for High Technology Materials, and Megan Jacobs, Professor with a focus in Fine Arts at the Honors College. As they break down their op-ed published in this week's print edition of the Daily Lobo headlined, Climate Justice at UNM, Can't Afford to Wait, Divest from Fossil Fuels, Invest in Solar and Wind. Awesome. So to get the interview started... um, all of you guys wrote an op-ed that was featured in this week's Daily Lobo print edition that was headlined Climate Justice at UNM. Um, just real quick, I'd like to go around the group and just see, uh, just kind of understand what the inspiration behind writing this op-ed was. Let me start. My name is Walter. Uh, I started about a year ago because I was very concerned about this existential crisis of climate change. Um, there's a group called 350.org that has been uh, emphasizing the, uh, the calamity, really, of climate change, which we're already seeing. This has been going on for 20 years already. And uh, so I wrote a divestment um, um, resolution for the faculty senate there had been previous attempts uh, over the years, over the last 10 years to uh, get UNM to act on climate change and uh, largely unsuccessfully. Uh, so I, so then this was taken up by the uh, faculty Senate and we all worked together on a resolution and the resolution, well, actually there's two resolutions now which was, were uh, passed by the Faculty Senate just uh, day before yesterday. So Gino, um, this is Ravi Jain. I'm an ex-faculty senator. I was a faculty senator for about four years, ending about two years ago. And about, uh, I've been very concerned with the climate change initiatives. I've seen uh, many initiatives of, of the kind all around the country. My uh, Colleagues at UC and particularly at UC Davis have been very, very proactive. Uh, both UC Davis and UC Berkeley have been very proactive on this, on this issue. And, uh, and besides that, I've uh, generally been very concerned about it. Um, so I brought it up about four years ago uh, with others in the Faculty Senate. Uh, and it just didn't seem like it, was fly, it would fly at all because of the concern that we could not, uh, we could not buy the hand that fed us in terms of the oil and gas economy. And it was just uh, the general response was so negative that I never did go as far as Walter did, where he, where he actually put together an initiative which called the whole thing restarted. And when I heard of Walter's initiative, I, I jumped on the bandwagon, if you may, uh, to, to proceed with supporting the cause. Uh, and that's really literally where we got it rolling again, another about three months ago. Gina, act, this is Steffi Weisberg. Actually, um, 
there had been attempts to uh, address climate change much earlier. President Schmidley actually set UNM on a great path in starting in 2007. He set some emissions goals for UNM and um, actually had UNM measuring uh, greenhouse emissions. Um, they, he did three inventories um, every three years. But um, along the way, um, we sort of got off that trajectory. There was a climate action plan written in 2009 um, and UNM joined a um, college uh, initiative among, with a bunch of other universities, um, but we let that membership lapse. Uh, to President Stokes' credit, we have now rejoined that but um, the climate action plan has not been uh, updated. And um, so not much is moving. And there's a, a student group called UNM LEAF. And two years ago, um, they tried to engage the administration. And then, so ASUNM has passed resolutions and so did the staff council um, and the faculty union passed resolutions. So the faculty senate is now um, done the same. So we've kind of come for all the parts of the university have passed resolutions saying it's really, really time now to address these issues um, at UNM. And I think um, I'll jump in here. I think one of the things that I'm really excited about with the resolutions um, that Walter got started is that with this last um, round of putting these before the Faculty Senate and, and working through all the issues, we decided to separate it into two different resolutions. And, um, you know, to us, it didn't really make sense to have this one on divestment, but then on campus, we're not really living sustainably either, right? And so we created this new resolution that's more about green initiatives on campus. And we're hoping that that one's going to address some of the um, you know, for example, um, all the waste that's coming out of our dining halls, you know, um, that's, that's absolutely ridiculous that at this, in this day and age, a university is using styrofoam, using all these disposable plastics and that sort of thing. Um, and so we added a part to that resolution that talks about zero waste on campus. And so that's, um, you know, just to give you an idea about 42% of all the greenhouse gas emissions are caused by production and use of, of goods, including um, food and products and packaging and that sort of thing. So um, by reducing and, and reusing, we'll be able to conserve some of that energy and really reduce our greenhouse gas emissions on campus. And then there's also, you know, talk about switching um, from gas to more sustainable ways of heating and cooling our, our buildings. Um, so we're hoping that um, between these two resolutions, we can start walking the walk, both with how we're investing um, in, in different, you know, different kinds of clean energy or uh, fossil fuels versus fossil fuels, and then how we're living on campus as well. And the divestment piece is, is pretty tricky. So we might want to unpack that a little bit too at some point during this uh, interview. Right, there, there's a, a, an element here of social justice. As the economy transitions from oil and gas to more renewable energy types, there will be people that will lose their jobs and need to be retrained and to have opportunities for new jobs. So 
that's part of our concern here is to have social justice in this very necessary climate transition. Another thing that I think that we that we found through research um, is just how um, how interlinked climate change is with so many people's lives, livelihoods, um, and and one thing that really struck me was just the um, the U.S. Resilience Toolkit um, has information about how they project that climate change will start to impact communities and peoples. And um, it states that, quote, uh, climate change threatens indigenous people's livelihoods and economies. It in, its impacts are projected to be especially severe for many of the 567 federally recognized tribes in the United States that depend on traditional places, foods, and lifestyles, end quote. And so I think here you see that the relationship between equi equity and inclusion is, is linked um, within the climate crisis discussion. And these are larger dialogues that obviously um, people are having on campus are, ha are happening nationally. So we see like those connections with the climate crisis uh, discussion as well. Yeah, that kind of leads me into my next question. One thing that really struck me when I was reading the opening of this article is um, how centered it is on the climate crisis here in New Mexico. Um, it's something I feel like a lot of, re a lot of our readers um, go through their daily lives and they don't really notice, you know, another drought that we're in or wildfires around the state. Um, and the opening of the article really ties into um, how these situations that are currently ongoing within the state impact everybody, not only people in Albuquerque, but uh, the indigenous tribes we have living around the state. Um, when you all were writing the introduction um, and really writing the article as a whole, was that something you kept in mind that you really wanted to keep this Albuquerque, New Mexico centered? Um, or is it something that kind of just developed naturally as you were writing the piece? I'll jump in here. I, I think that, um, you know, New Mexico is definitely being impacted by climate change in a very real way. It's happening now. And I research uh, water scarcity and, um, you know, there are a lot of places that are running out of water and we're in, very much in denial about that in New Mexico. Not only has um, our temperature in the state, um, uh, our, our increase has been higher than the global average, but our rate of increase has been about twice the global average. And, and that's a big concern. Um, we're mining our aquifers, um, for water and we're pumping them dry. You know, we don't have a lot of extra water resources to turn to if we don't try to get this figured out soon. Um, we're in a, a drought and, and the droughts are predicted to get worse into the future. So I think water is a very real concern. And then that impacts, you know, farmers and ranchers and businesses and um, just basically everybody, water is life, right? So I think that um, we can start thinking about this in New Mexico because we're, climate change is here <laughs> and we need to get our act together. Um, and I also wanted to point out that, um, oh yeah, so the, the other thing is, you know, the, the state has passed the Energy Transitions Act back in 2019. Um, and that will address some of the, the new jobs and training and that sort of thing that I'm hoping UNM can also help with in the state. Um, but our own city of Albuquerque has declared a climate emergency and it's currently developing a climate action plan. Um, so for UNM to sort of, you know, sit by and um, ignore everything that's going around us in our own city and in our state, I think is, um, 
missing a lot of opportunities to get involved both for our students and for faculty research and everything we're doing on campus to try to start collaborating with the groups around us on how to move forward in the face of climate change. Yes, UNM is not, there's no representative on the climate task force for the Albuquerque. Um, I also, I live in Tejeras, which is, um, you know, a little bit east of Albuquerque. Our uh, well uh, dropped 20 feet in three years. Um, the, my immediate neighbors had to drill wells, this new wells this year, and that costs 30 to $50,000 to drill. There are people who live south of me who cannot afford to drill new wells, so they have all of their water trucked in. Um, this is a big, a big deal. Um, it's very hard for me to get house and fire insurance where I live because um, the fire risk is really um, high. Um, our trees are dying. So in rural areas, water is hitting us very hard. Um, there was an article in the Albuquerque Journal that you might have seen about all the ranchers who had to sell their herds off because they can't afford the supplemental feed because there's just not enough uh, water to uh, maintain the grasses that are going on. So I do think that people who live in the urban areas are a little um, insulated from these problems. But um, you know, if we are transitioning away from fossil fuels, the state desperately needs to diversify its economy. And yet our outdoor industries um, and our uh, farmers and ranchers are suffering because of climate change. So we may be losing them too. Even our ski areas are very challenged because of snow issues. And the um, horrible fires that we had in Northern New Mexico, um, the, the forests that are growing back now are not conifers. They're not the kinds of forests that will hold water really well. So um, we're going to see a lot of impacts of that um, coming down the line. Uh, and eventually these things will affect um, the urban areas. But on the, on the optimistic side, <laughs> We, this transition will allow us to reinvent our economy in a much healthier way. In fact, renewable energy is much cheaper than gas and oil and nuclear. And so this will say, there will be an initial investment to transition to renewable ways of living but uh, in the long run, it will be economically beneficial for New Mexico. Many companies like Facebook and Google really value zero carbon renewable energy. So this is a huge uh, opportunity for New Mexico to enter the uh, global economy. And studies have shown that New Mexico can be, provide the least expensive renewable electricity in the nation. So we need to be investing in that. And UNM can help a lot with these kinds of investments, both in terms of the intellectual property that comes from UNM professors, and also you could use its endowment to invest in these kinds of projects, just as the State Investment Council is doing with um, its funds. I should also say that a couple of Albuquerque companies, Unirac and Array Technologies, were started here in garages 
and are now on the New York Stock Exchange, the first New Mexico companies that have been developed here that are now uh, global uh, companies in, uh, in the renewable energy area. Uh, and Gino, uh, in terms of the relevance to New Mexico, uh, the wind farms here are getting, first of all, solar energy is very plentiful. So renewable is, energy is very, very inexpensive in the first place. And from everything I hear, the wind farms, if they were developed in New Mexico, will provide perhaps the cheapest uh, form of energy per kilowatt hour, about three cents per kilowatt hour is the projected number uh, by far, so that in, in another five to 10 years, renewable energy will definitely be so much, much cheaper than, than any of the fossil fuels. So it doesn't make sense to wait. It does take five years to really develop uh, a technology completely uh, where it can be used. Alrighty, and then uh, my next question, um, kind of broadening out the scope a little bit, um, the op-ed touches on the Paris Climate Accord, which is something I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard um, in passing, but very few people, uh, I would imagine, probably know what the accord is aiming to do other than what the name kind of describes. Um, what was interesting is the point your op-ed makes is the fact that the U.S. recently rejoined the accord. Um, whose goal is to limit the global temperature through this agreement through many of the uh, nations around the world, but they're not making adequate progress. Um, just real quick for our listeners, um, if you guys don't mind just describing what is keeping these uh, global, uh, the global community from reaching this goal? Is there anything that they're not uh, doing uh, in the accord? Are they lacking in some form? Just kind of a description of what's keeping that uh, limit from reaching where it needs to go. I think one of the problems that we have in terms of the the world reaching the, those, the, uh, the, the limits where we want to be at is that there are uh, definitely countries that are uh, strong violators, uh, despite the fact that they're building their renewable economies they are currently totally ignoring uh, any of the emission standards. And I think that was, that I think is one of the fundamental problems. Uh, it will need every major country in the world, every major polluter and every major um, uh, climate, uh, climate violator to, to really get behind this 100% and that is the challenge. I'll, I'll jump in here and say that, that uh the large majority of companies recognize that climate is a, a challenge that needs to be addressed and we all need to work together all of the companies or, or countries india china europe united states all of these countries recognize that climate change is the challenge of the moment and i i think that they're all working on this uh, right now, Norway, for instance, is um, I understand selling only electric cars. Even this country, uh, General Motors plans to sell only electric cars starting in 2035. So I do think that there's uh, optimism that we will be able to solve this problem it's, it's largely a political problem, not a technical problem. We have the technical know-how to uh, transition to a zero carbon economy globally. 
Steffi, you want to jump in here and say something? You know a lot. Well, I think we're seeing this play out in the legislative session in New Mexico right now. You know, change is hard. There's a lot of money invested in fossil fuels and um, it's, you know, a lot of people have, um, don't want to change. And, um, you know, one of the nice things about the ETA was the Energy Transition Act was that it provided some money for transition for workers who were in um, coal, the coal um, plant um, and mines, which is wonderful. And if we can do more of that, um, that would be great. But, you know, the amount of access that um, the oil and gas industry has in political circles is really profound. And it is, and the same thing even with UNM, it's, it's very, very hard. People don't wanna step on toes. And the oil and gas industry in New Mexico per se, you know, really has provided um, a lot of our support. Um, by being able to lease our, um, get access to our oil and gas. So it's, it's very hard, um, but that also, you know, has prevented us from um, really developing our other uh, economies, our other industries. So, you know, it's, it, you have to keep reminding yourself what is the other consequence. The other consequence is getting this climate change and having this Texas having occurring more and more often what happened with the Texas outage and all the people who were without power and without water and having people die. I mean, that kind of things with this cascading collapse of infrastructures because we're just not prepared for things that were happen in the future because we are basing everything um, our priorities on uh, what has happened in the past, and that's not going to guide us anymore. So you have to weigh the cost of, you know, all these calamities happening in the future with the cost of, of changing now. And unfortunately, human nature is to react and not to pre prepare. So that's, that's why things are going to be very tough to change. And people have been working on this for a long time. And unfortunately, I, I think it's just gonna have to, we're just gonna have to have a lot of people get hurt before people are gonna be proactive about doing Gina, anything. Gina, you mentioned the global issue related to the Paris, Paris Climate Accord. It is too bad that for five, four years, uh, US dropped out of it. Now that we've gotten back into it, I think there's a very high level of optimism uh, all around the world. And I think if USA and China take a strong lead in this, the problem will definitely get resolved pretty rapidly. I think these are the two major transgressors. Uh, India is not very far behind and there are problems in Brazil too, but I think if, India, if USA and China were to get in line, which I think with USA getting back into it, uh, there's a very high level of optimism that we will reach many of the goals of the Paris Climate Accord. I guess to switch gears kind of a little bit, but in, 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 in taking a macro micro approach, I think we can look at these policies and see how um, on a global perspective, 
countries are working together and that's very important. But I also think just like bringing this back to something that Carolyn mentioned, just on a personal level, teaching students and modeling for students that the that changes in our lives, everything from like not using styrofoam cups to like, um, not driving on to campus as much, maybe carpooling or, you know, there are all these different models, like thinking about um, those personal changes that need to happen, I think are also really important because, you know, hopefully at UNM we're, we're helping students um, develop habits and patterns that will allow them to lead satisfying lives, but also sustainable lives and that they they are, are able to adjust to the world that is sort of uh, facing us. And part of that is like developing these skills to be aware of and to adapt to, um, our ever-changing climate and and to change uh, one's practices that that lead to degradation of that climate. So I just think that's important to note too that I think it has to happen on both levels, right? Like sort of this like top down, but also like on a personal level, changes have to happen. And just adding on to that, I think for students it must be pretty confusing because they're reading in the news about you know the um, microplastics polluting every water on the planet, polluting our soils, you know, they're everywhere, they're in people, they're in the food we eat. Um, and then we give them their like, swag bag when they get here and it's full of all this plastic. And, um, you know, we're serving things um, out of catering in the dining hall at UNM on, in styrofoam, you know, this is part of this microplastics problem in the globally. Um, but, you know, they're gonna be in other communities that are banning plastic bags, banning straws, you know, banning single use plastic cutlery. And then here we are on campus doing this other thing. And, and that must just be, you know, they're probably wondering, well, how important is this really? And I think we could do a better job with um, our modeling and messaging here on campus. And I also wanna just mention, I keep thinking about this uh, a paper by Professor Larry Goulder from Stanford um, Economics Department. And we're talking a lot about, yeah, change is difficult. And yes, it costs money to change. And so there's this hurdle, you know, you have to get over. But in this paper that he wrote um, years ago at this point, he demonstrated that by delaying action, it costs a lot more money at that point. You know, Steffi talked about reacting versus being proactive. If we wanna save money, we start acting now, we start planning now. If we wanna spend a lot more money, that's when we react and we try to quickly make change later. And I don't think that's the situation that New Mexico or UNM wants to be in. I would just say that this recent pandemic that we're in is an example of a case where we didn't prepare adequately. We denied the seriousness early and we're, we're negotiating a, a 1.9 trillion economic dole out now as a result. Um, had we been a little more careful earlier on, I think our economy would now be in much better shape. And the good thing that the pandemic showed us too is that you know we we're, we're doing Zoom now. We I didn't have to drive to campus, and I know a lot of people are have cabin fever. But and I know how difficult distance learning has been for students, but and professors too. But at the same time, I'm hoping that maybe we can still adopt some things when the pandemic is over, so that we do not have to travel as much so we do not have to consume as much so we do not need we find the things that are really important and essential in our lives so we do not have to just 
you know, be the consumers that we are so much that drives the, the you know, the system that, that uses so much energy because, you know, we, 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 the United States is the second biggest uh, emitter of greenhouse gases. And, you know, New Mexico is huge because of our industry. We, we each emit 50 tons of um, carbon per person per year compared to the national average of 18. So, um, you know, I'm not proud of that. <laughs> so I, I, I think I, that it's important that we carry some of these practices that we've developed and think about what is really essential and what we really need. Um, I know for myself, I'm at, you know, the age where a lot of my friends, they think that they deserve to travel all over the globe for however time they want. And I, you know, I can go watch a nature show. I don't need to go to Antarctica, you know, for the third time to see the penguins, you know, <laughs> or whatever. Um, so I, I, I wish people would, would think more about their choices in that, in that way. I'd, I would agree. I think the pandemic, uh, one of the upsides is that it, it forced us to try to do the things we said were impossible. Um, you know, like doing Zoom conferences, you know, teaching from home by Zoom, that sort of thing. And as a result, you know, air travel has been, you know, the, the emissions from air travel are greatly reduced. And, you know, it's, and it hasn't been all bad either, you know, for the conferences I've been at, not only was attendance higher than ever, but there are people from around the world attending these conferences now that never would have attended before. And so you get all, all this interaction and, you know, questions and discussion that I feel like is, is a lot richer than um, a, a typical more US focused audience at some of these conferences. So I feel like there are upsides and um, I like Steffi hope that we do carry forward some of these practices that we've been forced to try and develop during the pandemic. I just like to add um, uh, in the School of Engineering, we, we had some, um, we usually have some summer programs for uh, high school students and the last two, with the last summer, we had them all remote and that was wonderful. We were able to get students from rural areas, which we normally couldn't have. However, their broadband was very bad which is a big problem for rural areas. So now we have an opportunity, there's some bills in the legislature to try to uh, coordinate all of the broadband efforts in New Mexico. And this is a great you know, opportunity for trying to also promote health and education and business throughout New Mexico. But it's not getting funded at the levels that it should. <laughs> So we have to ask, why aren't we doing that? Because that's going to help our transition to other, to help us diversify our economy. Um, and, you know, all these little tools that we need to take the next step, we're not investing in. And I don't understand why that's not happening. <laughs> there are currently uh, bills in the legislature to do these things. Let's hope that they pass. All right. <clears throat> and then it, uh, my next question, we kind of we touched on it a little bit throughout the uh, answers to the last question, but um, the op-ed makes the point of needing New Mexico needing to shift their energy portfolio from fossil fuel de uh, dependency and production to 
uh, non-polluting renewable energies. Um, I know uh, the, the gas and oil industry was a point of contention during uh, Deb Holland's confirmation hearing that was taking place the past few days. Um, New Mexico is one of the bigger oil and gas producers in the United States, but at the same time is a rising producer in renewable energies. Uh, we pointed out wind energy, solar energy is pretty plentiful as well. The op-ed kind of lays out a little bit of a, tr of a transition of what it might look like. Would you guys mind providing a little bit more context into how a transition like that would first take place and then what it would look like over time? Would it be a change that, I mean, obviously it would be a change that those in the oil and gas industry would notice relatively quickly. Um, but what would it look like here in New Mexico for us to make that energy portfolio shift? Let me take a stab at this. Uh, I, I think it's the, the economics are going to be driven by users of gas and oil. As transportation becomes electrified, I suppose the price of oil will go down because there will be less demand and therefore much of our extraction will also cease um, because there are other countries such as Saudi Arabia that can produce the necessary oil at a lower cost. Um, so I think as we use less gas and indeed we will use less gas because we must to uh, limit our carbon footprint um, we will heat our houses with electricity rather than gas, and that will cause the, uh, the gas industry to, to go down in New Mexico. Um, I think these are things that we can foresee and we need to plan for. That's one of the reasons why we suggested divesting from gas and oil investments. It's already, I mean, it's already happening. We're, we're seeing uh, wind farms and solar farms going up already. Um, and with the legislation with the Energy Transition Act um, happening, um, that of course just, just does electricity and it just does um, investor-known utilities and electric co-ops. Um, the next step would be looking at uh, heating, um, and um, transportation, as Walter said. Um, so it just depends on, you know, how much legislation we can get on and then also economics, of course, that's really important. A lot of the um, gas drilling here in, in New Mexico, in the Permian in particular, was not very economic and it took a while for that to catch up to it. But, um, you know, if we can have compassionate um, legislation like the ETA that tries to provide for communities, that's wonderful. But probably, um, you know, it's it's the the ironically the Texas uh, outages drove the the price of oil way up. <laughs> so now people, you know, are drilling again. But um, again, you have to compare the cost of continuing this industry with the enormous cost that uh, 
to infrastructure to insurance. You know, California had to make insurance companies stay to ensure that how communities where the fires burned down, you know, the houses. So are we going to have to, we just have to weigh the difference between what's going the, the, the effects of climate change with, um, you know, not acting. So Gina, um, regarding the transition, one of the key limitations in the technologies for the transition at this point is the, is the uh, battery storage the uh, capability, the storage capability. Uh, we are at a point where we could easily create enough solar energy, at least for the state, uh, uh, to start with a fairly economical price point. But, uh, but the storage is a major issue. So uh, as part of the ETA uh, and with other initiatives coming up in the legislature, there will be more investment in batteries and in storage capabilities, including hydraulic storage. There's currently from New Mexico a proposal to the federal government for a hydraulic storage program where the energy that is generated either by solar power or wind power will be stored hydraulically. And again, there is battery storage initiatives. So once we have, as, as part of the transition, to put your question on the transition, I, I see this as a multi-step process that will be increased use uh, of solar power combined with storage and as the storage capabilities uh, get developed better, there will be uh, investment in wind farms because ultimately wind farms are going to, the, the numbers very clearly state that they will be much more inexpensive than solar power and overall much more reliable in a state like New Mexico. So that combined with increased storage will cause increased use of electricity, which will get back to what Walter mentioned, uh, decreased demand of oil and gas because electrical power will take over in whichever scenarios is, are more practical, including energy vehicles, sorry, electric vehicles, and, uh, and uh, electric uh, heating of homes, et cetera. So I think that that is the process. It will take about at least 15 to 20 years for this to get into place. But the cutoff, the, the transition point in terms of the cost is, is already here now as opposed, and, and will definitely the, uh, the renewables will overtake. Uh, the volume of renewables right now is not very high. That's the, that's the problem. Uh, but th that will increase once we have storage capabilities and storage is really currently perhaps the Achilles heel in terms of increased adoption. Well, but, but I would, I would uh, point out that there are many storage technologies, including hydrogen storage, compressed air, thermal storage. And as, as you've said, Ravi, uh, pumped hydro storage. Yeah. Um, so there, there are lots of technologies that uh, could be, we need to invest in these. I think in the technology is not there. The investment is not there at this point. Uh, Walter, I hope you agree with that. We have yeah. one technology. Yeah. It's just the investment that is needed, and I think that investment will come. I think so. So it's going to be a multi-step process with increased power generation, increased storage, and and uh, oscillating between solar and wind. I think that those are probably the only two. To, to major sources in the, uh, of renewables in, in New Mexico. And I think that coupled with various storage technologies will cause this thing to, to basically bootstrap up to a, to a fully renewable economy. I, right, I agree. Yeah. But, but we do need leadership both in the business 
sector as well as in the uh, in the government sector to make these things happen. These are big investments. We need to have a good planning process. And and that's a very good point because uh, in the writing that you um, in the op-ed you guys published. Um, it talks about the impact this would have not only on the gas and energy portfolio for New Mexico, but also for the, the economical impacts, the environmental impacts that this move would have, um, needing to transition those oil and gas workers into a new field with training. So that it's a multifaceted issue um, from what the op-ed describes um, and is a uh, as Ravi mentioned, it's not something that's going to be done in the next five years. This is something that's going to take 10 to 15, sometimes even longer than that. So it seems like this is a process that is definitely, the end goal is definitely attainable. It's just going to take a little while to get there. We do have a lot of uh, training programs over, throughout the state. So that's great. Um, you can, uh, UNM actually did a workforce study recently and has a list in the back of um, all the two-year colleges that provide training in all kinds of sustainability uh, vocations. I just would like to point out that I remember 10 years ago when people talked about generating electricity with solar, we were at less than one-tenth of one percent of our energy portfolio being solar. And I was at an engineering conference where people sort of laughed at the idea that, that uh, solar could ever be a significant source of energy. And here we are, I think uh, solar is currently what, 10% 10, 10 of our energy portfolio here in New Mexico. So things can change really quickly. I just, just want to make one uh, uh, comment uh, in terms of UNM's role uh, uh, in, in, in terms of its contribution to the state. Uh, I was just talking a few weeks ago to a friend at UC Davis, a colleague at UC Davis, which is perhaps the, uh, I think perhaps the most proactive university, single university in the world in, in issues of, uh, of green energy and sustainability. Uh, and I was very impressed. Uh, Caroline mentioned something about a clean campus. I was very impressed with all the initiatives they have going on at UC Davis. And I strongly urge all of us to look at, not just people on this committee, but everyone at UNM, to look at UC Davis as a model uh, in terms of what they have done and see if we can emulate it in some way or the other and, uh, and, and, and pick ourselves up to, uh, to a very, to much greener, uh, campus and a greener state. And uh, that kind of leads me into my next question, um, which has to do with in the op-ed, you, uh, you guys write UNM can play a crucial role in energy transition by investing in its re by investing its resources in New Mexico's clean energy and climate change projects, continuing studies on uh, economic diversity strategies for the state, updating and accelerating its own climate acceleration plan, action plan, uh, to become carbon free as soon as possible. So the university um, is kind of in a central role um, with its ability to kind of influence this next generation of, of, of students to um, think outside the box when it comes to pushing towards this carbon free future. Um, how best would UNM 
um, use their investments towards this? You guys lay out a few projects here, um, but how can they get students interested and students invested in this? Because I know for a lot of a lot of students and a lot of people in my generation, climate change is a big issue for them. But it's one thing from, you know, kind of worrying about climate change to doing it in an action to kind of change it. How can UNM best get students from that worry to action phase, in your opinion? I think we, we could use a um, some sort of um, like a, a, a grant program on campus, like small internal kinds of grants on campus for um, students to get involved with projects for classes, you know, teachers, um, instructors, professors could use um, um, classroom settings to do projects on climate change and get uh, small amounts of funding where necessary for that. Um, then we could have, you know, also faculty doing research with students on some of these different topics um, funded by either seed money from UNM or other uh, federal and foundation kinds of sources to do some of this work. I think there's, there will be increasing amounts of money behind climate related research. So I think that there are a lot of different levels where um, students could get involved, you know, either through these um, grants that our faculty get, but also having some sort of, um, um, like we've had the grand challenges around uh, water, substance abuse and um, healthy aging. And we could do something related to like something similar to that around climate change, where we look at, um, you know, we could involve uh, the School of Education around, you know, education on climate change, communications around climate change, the um, engineering and, and technology side of things, you know, in, in improving um, some of the different technologies or innovating completely new ideas around some of this, the Health Sciences Center could be involved. You know, I feel like this is a topic that the, um, you know, it affects all aspects of our lives. And I think that we could do, you know, similar to the Grand Challenges, have a um, fairly, you know, modest pot of money as seed, seed funding to get some of these projects going at the, you know, student group level, the um, classroom level, and you know, just at the the professors and their student lab group levels too. So I, I feel like there are a lot of ways to get students involved on campus. The um, students at UNM Leaf also um, a lot of them are in sustainability's program, which can be a, is a minor, but some a lot of them have spoken about wanting that to be a major, wanting to have climate change studies be part of the core curriculum. Um, even just having a website that lists all the classes across campus that uh, deal with climate change. Um, so Caroline mentioned North, North Campus, there's a class um, Heidi Rogers teaches about the health effects in public health of climate change. But I think a lot of people, I mean, UNM has all these silos and I think people don't know what's going on. And um, I think there needs to be a lot more in inter-campus communications. Even in, in the Anderson School in March, there's going to be a conference on impact investing and um, uh, the climate change risk within within investing and I doubt most of the university knows about it. So I think there's, 
we could have a speaker series. We could be doing a lot more for students so that they they know that the university, you know, is is has a vision in that direction. Um, and I recently read a blog about the role of universities in translating what climate change means to different disciplines because um, that's really lacking. And I've seen that in the legislature too. Um, so I think UNM could play a role in a lot of different ways, but there doesn't seem to be a coherent, you know, easily accessible, visible um, plan for doing that. And I think just following up on what Steffi was saying, if, if we did have something similar to the grand challenges with this, you know, pot of seed money, that would, this is an interdisciplinary problem. We can't work on it in silos, right? And that would encourage this collaboration across campus from all of the different uh, work that's already being done across campus to try to kind of get everybody together working on this and thinking about it from a more holistic um, perspective. I think one way to stimulate this, I like uh, something that came up, it's come up in Caroline's ideas and, uh, mm -hmm. and Caroline's suggestions and also what uh, uh, Steffi mentioned, uh, that the students at LEAF had mentioned. Uh, the idea of having sustainability as a major will definitely drive this forward in a very, very strong way. And the one question I have uh, for Steffi or, and for Caroline and whoever else wants to comment on it, in order to have a major, you need to have one department lead it. I was wondering which department that would be, and uh, it would, the, the effort would have to be multidisciplinary, but it would have to come out of a certain department of school. And I was wondering if there's any natural candidate at this point that, is, that, may, that may be able to lead it. And I think, again, once we would have to plant the seeds in that department, the faculty and department head would have to agree to lead it, and then the initiative would have to go back through the through the faculty senate probably in the next academic year with a proposal for a major. Um, any thoughts, uh, Steffi or Caroline or anyone else, as to how this lead how this lead and cohesive effort would occur? Who would lead it? I mean, I'll just say that right now, sustainability studies is in the um, geography and environmental studies department, and the new. Um, uh, director of that of sustainability studies is Melinda Morgan, and I can't speak to her desire to you know change this into a major or lead it if it was a major. But um, I feel like that's a good spot for it where it, where it already sits. And Steffi might have more thoughts about. Um, okay. I'll just comment since uh, Steffi nodded. No, uh, comment that we should again um, go back and look at UC Davis that has done an excellent job in this and use that as a model at least to see whether we can implement some of the features of what they have done over the last few years. It is, they've really taken a very strong, proactive and dominant position in, in sustainability. They're actually rated the number one university in the world in sustainability, for, but, but those ratings are, are controversial. I'd like to thank you, Gino, for uh, inviting us and uh, Really, we all need to be climate advocates so that it becomes less of a problem for people to uh, just ignore the problem, to deny the problem. We all need to speak up and the students need to be doing that as well, rather than just uh, 
getting their next homework assignment out, they all need to be advocates if they expect to have any kind of a future. And uh, that leads me into my uh, closing question that I have for you all. Um, we touched on UNM needing to shift its focus and its investments um, towards um, helping reach that zero carbon future. Um, and the article ends with um, the, the quote, uh, UNM can no longer afford to wait the time to act on climate changes now. Um, this is kind of a, it's a unique uh, moment in history, not only with the pandemic, but also given the recent um, weather events that have taken place as well, whether it was the forest fires turning the skies in San Francisco red or the winter storm that froze and turned off the power in Texas. Um, the effects of global warming are becoming harder and harder for people to ignore now, especially given these extreme weather events that we've seen take place over the past few past year. Um, this op-ed is really an urge and a call to action for making this change happen. Um, for our readers that go through and our listeners that are listening to this podcast, what is the one thing you all hope they take away from reading this article um, that will hopefully start a little bit of a change in perspective or a change in action for them uh, when it comes to the issue of climate change? I would uh, say that I hope that the readers of our article will see that there's a huge opportunity here. We're not pessimistic at all. We think that we can solve this problem of climate change and um, it's just that we need to uh, do the right things. It's a, a both a personal and a political problem that we need to address. Uh, Gino, uh, I have suggested tongue-in-cheek that we use a byline of uh, breaking bad climate habits at UNM, and maybe that would be a slogan. <laughs> I guess I, I would just add that um, you know, like we talked about earlier, students might be kind of confused as to how important climate change is just because of um, they're maybe not seeing enough action on campus, um, but then they're also reading about all of these disasters and other things going around on, on around the world, um, including not just the, you know, the fires and, and what just happened in Texas, but also um, the straw bans and, you know, the all the wildlife that's being impacted by plastics and that sort of thing. Um, you know, so they might be feeling kind of um, confused about how important this really is. And so I think with this article, um, for whoever read it, I'm hoping, or is listening now, I'm hoping that folks understand that just because there's not action on our campus, it doesn't mean it's not important. And that there are a lot of things that they can do, as Walter said, personally to, to start um, with action at the personal level and start working toward change at the local level and, and perhaps beyond if they're driven to do that. Just, yeah, just to echo that, I mean, I think that the climate crisis is, is upon us, but that doesn't mean um, we shouldn't have hope and that that we shouldn't forget that we have a voice, right? Like students are powerful and that they have a voice and faculty members are powerful and staff members, like we're all sort of banding together and looking at the writing on the wall and saying like the time is now and probably should have been five years ago, right? Like um, these things that were started by Walter and Ravi and Steffi should have happened 
even earlier than this point, but at this point, like everyone needs to band together and and sort of assess the situation and start to, to act um, and to request things, um, uh, re request change and, and to enact change within their um, individual lives as well. I mean, I think that's really important. And, part of the world we're sort of living in and I think at this point we can't we can't burrow away and say someday in the future someday in the future like the future is here <laughs> we, are, we have arrived and now we need to be um we need to be creative with how we problem solve and that is I think Walter pointed to this and Steffi too that is an opportunity for the state it's an opportunity for growth it's an opportunity for new jobs it's an opportunity for carving out a new future which is really exciting right like we are in a great state for this um but we do need to like um, not drag our heels kicking and screaming into that future, but embrace it. Yeah, I think you've all said it very well. So I don't think I need to say anything. <laughs>